0: Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation, and instructions will be given at the time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and zero on your touchdown telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Masner. Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Grace and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is a collaborative, or really a partnership, actually, um, between the Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care. And today's program is on non-small cell lung cancer treatment advances. Um, And this is part one of living with non-small cell lung cancer. And... um, Today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Regeneron, Sanofi Genzyme, Turning Point Therapeutics, Inc., and a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them for their support of this uh, series. And um, I want to just acknowledge that we have um, wonderful speakers on the call today, and we have wonderful participants. We have over 175 participants on this program today. Come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities, and we also have participants from the United Kingdom. So it's actually a global call as well. And um, we, um, you are clearly a group of information seekers. Now, before before I introduce our first speaker, I would like to ask you all just a few questions. Um, and uh, um, I'm going to start with our first question. And, um, I'm to, and for those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the questions and you'll also be able to rate your answers. And we do this because it helps us to um, be sure that we are, the programs are tailored to meet your needs. So getting a sense of what you know before the program starts will really help us as we plan future programs in 2022. So on a scale of 1 to 5, with 1 the highest rating and 5 the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the current standard of care for non-small cell lung cancer in the context of COVID-19. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the role of chemotherapy, radiation oncology, and targeted cancer therapies in the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five, the lowest rating.
2: And the next question is,
1: I understand new treatment approaches and the role of precision medicine for non-small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five, the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. And again, for those of you live streaming, you'll be able to see the questions and rate your answer. So the next question is, I understand how to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain for non-small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and
2: five the lowest rating.
1: And then this will be the last question. I understand the importance of clinical trials for non-small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. Well, thank you all so much um, for those of you who participated in these questions. It really helps us, um, again, to plan programs that most meet your needs. And now it is really my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Jian Liu, and Dr. Liu is medical oncologist attending Thoracic Oncology Program, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute Instructor in Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Liu will discuss overview of lung cancer, current standard of care, and new treatment approaches in the context of COVID-19, the role of chemotherapy and targeted treatments, including how precision medicine informs treatment choices, and managing side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Liu.
3: Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. Um, and I hope everyone can hear me. Um, so, my name is Jia Luo, um, and I'm one of the thoracic medical oncologists um, here in Boston, as um, Dr. Messner. Thank you for that introduction. So, um, this is all lot of topics to cover and um, it's great to um, uh, think of this as a framework Um, and then i would um, encourage you to um, ask about your personal diagnosis with your medical oncologist because in 2022 what i just want to emphasize in general is that there are so many treatments out there for non-small cell lung cancer Um, depending on what sort of mutation, what stage you have, um, that a lot of what I'll talk about is a general overview, um, but your specific questions should definitely um, be directed at uh, your medical oncologist. So um, the first topic is on um, the overview of lung cancer. Um, And so many of you probably um, know that there are um, two main types of lung cancer. Um, one is called small cell lung cancer and the other one is called non-small cell lung cancer. So I'm gonna specifically focus on non-small cell lung cancer given the the topic of this program. Um, and then what's confusing is that within non-small cell lung cancer, there's actually additional types of uh, lung cancer. So, the most common under the umbrella of non-small cell lung cancer is called lung adenocarcinoma. The second most common kind um, or subtype is called squamous cell lung cancer. Um, Beyond those two subtypes, there are also other subtypes like large cell, large cell neuroendocrine. There can be a mix of adenocarcinoma and squamous. And so, um, getting that Piece of information um, is important. Um, and then in terms of how we decide uh, in general on, on treatment. So, I think um, there's sort of two um, pieces of information that your medical oncologist um, is looking for. So, the first one is known as the stage of, of the cancer. So, stage essentially means where is the cancer located? Um, And then the second piece of information is, um, is there a cancer mutation or biomarker that can help guide treatment? So I'll briefly discuss uh, both of those. So the the stage at diagnosis essentially is, we need to do what are called scans to find um, where the cancer is located. Um, So lung cancer generally, um, starts in the lung. Um, and then once it has left the lung, the first place it goes to is the lymph nodes in the center of the chest. Um, and then after that, it can spread to other organs, such as um, your adrenal glands, which are little organs sitting on top of your kidneys, um, the liver, bone, brain. And so that's why um, someone with lung cancer always gets um, scans at baseline in this generally includes um, a CAT scan of the body, which is, um, it's like getting um, hundreds of chest X-rays, but in a cross section. Um, So it's really um, detailed look at what's going on in the lung and in other organs. Um, Most people with lung cancer also get um, what's called a PET scan, PET. And that's just another way of better looking at certain areas such as your bones and the lymph nodes, Um, and then most individuals with lung cancer um, also get a brain MRI scan, um, and that's just a better scan of looking at is there um, potential cancer spots in the brain. And so um, a medical oncologist needs that piece of information before recommending treatment. Um, The other piece of information, um, especially in 2022 is Uh, what are known as cancer mutations or cancer biomarkers. Um, And depending on your subtype of non-small cell lung cancer, your medical oncologist will discuss with you, or even um, potentially the um, surgeon who um, initially does the biopsy or the pulmonologist who does the biopsy um, will discuss this with you. And it's essentially trying to figure out, um, are you someone who might Benefit from immunotherapy early on? Or are you someone who might benefit from a pill treatment early on? And in order to identify the cancer mutation or biomarker, um, what has to happen is you have to get um, a biopsy of the cancer. So um, either the radiologist, the the pulmonary doctor, the surgeon, and and if your first person you meet is you know, radiation oncologist or medical oncologist. One of those doctors has to say, ah, like, look at the scan. This is a spot um, that is suspicious for cancer, and it's also an easy spot to get to um, via a procedure to make the diagnosis. And usually, um, in order to make the diagnosis, you need what's called a bronchoscopy, so a camera um, that goes into the lungs, um, and it and the the either pulmonologist or thoracic surgeon will biopsy that suspicious spot on um, that was noted on, on a CAT scan. Um, alternatively, there's also um, a biopsy that can be done by pathologist that's called um, cytology, um, or a biopsy that's done by an interventional radiologist. Um, and so it could be multiple different doctors who end up doing that biopsy, but in order to make a diagnosis of lung cancer and make sure it's not something else like infection um, someone needs to do that biopsy and so once that's done um, that piece of of sample is um, uh, put into liquid nitrogen um, it's sent off to the pathologist and it's um, the the actual sample itself is sliced very thin you know at the Essentially, one cell layer level so that pathologists can look at it under a microscope and then they essentially put these slides into like um, like dye baths and you can think of pathologists like um, detectives trying to solve a mystery so they they put it in these dye baths and they say oh this is most consistent with lung adenocarcinoma and so they're the ones who make the diagnosis and that's why it always takes a couple days um, after a biopsy before we actually know what type of lung cancer um, and then additionally this is when um the pathologist or your your medical oncologist someone will talk to you about cancer mutation and biomarker testing or it might be you know ongoing reflexively um, at the place that you see see the doctor and so what they'll do is um they'll actually take the sample they'll either um, Uh, do additional stains, or they will send it for what's called DNA sequencing. So it's like, what are the mutations that are in the cancer itself? So this isn't something hereditary um, that you could pass on, but it's something like, what is causing these cancer cells to grow in your body? And so um, basically, when you come back for an appointment to see your medical oncologist, um, this these testing, some of it can take um, up to a couple weeks because they actually have to have a doctor um, known as a pathologist to review some of these. Um, they, they either can do it in in the hospital um, that you have the biopsy or they can send it to another company. But that company also has um, pathologists and they actually have to make sure the, the mutations are called correctly. So that's why it generally takes a couple of weeks because the They have to do the sequencing and and make the correct call. Um, And so I think um, that ultimately um, informs um, your medical oncologist what what treatments there are, both the stage and then also the cancer mutation biomarker testing. So that's why overall it takes um, some time. And so um, I'll kind of quickly address the next couple points, but I I think I wanted to make this first part clear because, um I, I get a sense that it usually feels like it takes a while for someone to tell you what the treatment is. And it's because um, we wanna we wanna take time to make the right staging and the right um uh cancer mutation slash biomarker decision. And so um this actually is what precision medicine is. It's um can we um, you know, figure out based on all this information what are the potential best treatment options, and then when we see um, the patient in clinic, we can say based on this we think this, but based on um, your goals and wishes, um, this might be the best choice. And so that's how um, we have a shared decision-making um, conversation. And so, um, really, the cancer mutation and biomarker um, dictates um, whether someone will get targeted therapy. And so there's there's um, eight different um, uh, cancer mutations that we currently suggest targeted therapy for. Um, so sort of the, the one that everyone hears about is something called EGFR. Um, and so, for example, there is a pill for that. Um, and then chemotherapy is something we definitely also give in most people who have uh, non-small cell lung cancer, and that's something your, your medical oncologist would also decide. Um, based on your stage and also your cancer mutation and biomarker status. Um, and then finally, I know I'm going to touch base on managing side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. And I think those are all very, very important. And um, those are something that sometimes we want to do even advance in advance of starting um, lung cancer-directed treatment to shrink the cancer. So. Um, The final topic I know that I was supposed to address briefly is um, what do we all do in the the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, And I would say that um, right now we're still doing everything we can to um, treat patients with lung cancer, um, balancing the the local risks of COVID. Um, And and I had um, done some research on this, and and we found out that um, it's more important to, to get your lung cancer treated. Um, And so I I would encourage people to get seen in clinic um, if they have lung cancer not wait um, until they have more symptoms. Um, I think every medical center has different rules for um, how long you have to wait if you have active COVID. Um, So I would follow whatever rules um, are locally recommended by by your cancer center. Um, And I know we have several other um, physicians um, on this call. And so this is a multidisciplinary team, and um, I, I know we're, we're about to hear from Dr. Rosenway, who's a, um, a radiation oncologist, and we also have um, uh, surgery um, as a treatment option. And so, um, ultimately, um, this is also a team, and um, there's lots of other individuals, such as social workers and um, clinical research coordinators and all sorts of people who will get involved in, in your lung cancer care, and that's all around the, the topic of precision medicine. So I'll just stop there and then turn it back over to Dr. Messner.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Luo. That was really an outstanding presentation. And just really, you set the stage for the entire program. Plus, you've given people a great deal of information about the thought that goes into making a treatment de- decision and the time it takes to get all the information that's that's assembled, really, Um, that's needed so that people can get the very best treatment. So thank you very much. Outstanding presentation. And um, our next speaker is Dr. Kenneth Rosenzweig. And Dr. Rosenzweig is professor and chair, Department of Radiation Oncology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, System Chair, Mount Sinai Health System. And Dr. Rosenzweig will address the role of radiation oncology, including types of radiation and its role in Treating non small cell lung cancer and pain, clinical trials, how research offers additional treatment options, and communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rosenzweig.
4: Hi, thank you. Good afternoon, and thank you for that introduction. Um, so, as Dr. Mesner said, I'm a radiation oncologist. And there are multiple types of radiation that we use for the treatment of lung cancer. Um, So the first type is for uh, people who have early stage lung cancer. So this would be typically a nodule in the lung, Uh, the tumor hasn't spread to lymph nodes or other parts of the body, and typically Uh, The type of treatment we recommend is surgery, you know, just cutting the tumor out. Um, But, you know, doing a lung surgery is is a major surgery and not everyone can tolerate it. So some people are in good shape and it's it's not a problem to have a lung surgery. But some people who have heart issues or other medical problems might have a difficult time with the surgery. So in these situations, uh, we do radiation. And uh, the radiation that we do for early-stage lung cancer has changed a lot over the past 10 to 15 years. Um, It used to be we bring in patients every day for for many, many weeks in a row. But now, um, with the advanced technology, we do a very focused treatment uh, on the tumor, um, and we are able to treat it very aggressively. And typically, just about four or five treatments are all that are needed Uh, to take care of uh, the lung cancer. And this is called stereotactic radiation. So that might be uh, a name that you hear. And it's used in other parts of the body as well, but it's probably most successful and most well-known for lung cancer. And that's all done as an outpatient over the course of one to two weeks. So it really is, um, you know, fantastic innovation where someone can have their lung cancer cured with just a a handful of outpatient um, uh, visits and and not staying in the hospital overnight at all. For situations where the tumor is more advanced, so where it has spread to the lymph nodes, uh, what we call locally advanced lung cancer, uh, people who have this uh, situation, this stage, are going to need chemotherapy as well as radiation. Uh, You can't do stereotactic treatment to the lymph nodes because um, um, the lymph nodes are towards the center of the chest, Um, and there's a lot of uh, other organs in the center of the chest, Uh, the the trachea, which is the main breathing tube, the esophagus, which is um, uh, the food pipe, the heart, um, and, and other vital organs. So that is a situation where we do have to break the radiation up into uh many parts where we typically do one treatment a day uh for uh five days a week, so Monday through Friday for six weeks, so a total of thirty visits uh and that's called just you know external beam radiation therapy and that if that's typically done with chemotherapy so you know, on one, you know, on one day a week or or one or two days every three weeks, uh, the uh, the p- people getting treated have a very busy day where they come in in the morning, get the chemotherapy, then come for radiation uh, afterwards or or vice versa. So you tend to be spending a, a lot of time in clinic on those days. On the days when there's no chemotherapy, you just come in for the radiation and go home. And the radiation treatment is typically about 15 minutes. But again, it has to be broken up into um, one treatment a day over over many many weeks. Uh, there is another type of radiation where we can give it uh, one uh, you know one day a week over many weeks. But it's a, an advanced technique called proton radiation. So proton radiation is um, is a type of radiation that's very good at delivering radiation and not treating not giving any scatter radiation to structures that are near the area that you're treating, um, which is something we try to do in in general, but proton is even uh, more precise. Uh, Proton machines are um, extremely large, and they have to be uh, custom-built, and they're extraordinarily expensive. It's the single most expensive piece of medical equipment. So there are only about 40 in the United States, and, and most cities um, have one. Probably only one out of 20 patients who need radiation for lung cancer would benefit uh, from proton radiation. So if your doctor is not offering it to you, if your radiation oncologist isn't talking about it, it's probably because they don't think it's it's going to be helpful in your particular situation In my own practice, um, usually I'm recommending protons uh, for people who have been previously treated with radiation, and you want to take special care not to give a double dose of radiation to the area, so if someone needs radiation, you know, a few years later to an area that's right next to a, a spot that's been previously radiated, protons could be very helpful for that. So that's typically the main situation where where I ask some of the proton doctors um, to help out. And again, uh, um, so if if you're not uh, being referred to that, there's there's probably a a good reason for that. And the final type of radiation, which we use in lung cancer, and really for all cancers, is palliative radiation. So this is where we give just a few treatments uh, to a spot that's causing a symptom. So this could be a tumor that's in the bone and causing pain. It could be a tumor that's blocking um, a breathing tube and causing shortness of breath or um, causing some bleeding. And the goal of the radiation is to alleviate the symptoms uh, as quickly as possible. So this, ter- this typically is a shorter course of radiation. Um, you know, it can be as short as a single treatment or at most about two weeks and the goal is not um, to cure the, the, the cancer, but really just to alleviate the symptoms as quickly uh, as possible so people are feeling better. Um, and that's something we do in lung cancer and, and truthfully all other cancers as well. Um, so I also want to talk a little bit about clinical trials. So clinical trials are situations where we try a, a new treatment um, to, in an effort to see if it's going to help people uh, live longer or have less side effects uh, from their treatment. So, um, so for some trials, it's for situations where there aren't any uh, good treatments that are available for a patient, and we say, well, here's a new therapy. Let's see if this works. So, that's a phase one trial. And it might seem, you know, very exciting to maybe be getting a, a cutting-edge medicine. You know, a lot of those trials aren't uh, successful because we're just seeing if, if, the, if the drug is tolerable and it's a little bit of a shot in the dark, uh, and that'd be a phase one trial. More advanced trials are with medications and treatments that we know are effective, and we're just trying to figure out is it more effective than the standard treatment? So some of those trials are the only way to get some um, new types of uh, medicines or treatments that are out there or new doses of treatments that are out there. And again, there's a a lot of uh, appeal for that. Um, If we knew for sure that the new treatment worked better, it it would be the standard of care. um, We don't know that for sure and that's why the trial is being done. but you know but it's it's typically done in a very safe and highly monitored manner um uh, because the the um you know, you want to keep it as um you you want you don't want um other issues um confusing the results typically there's a lot of uh criteria that go into deciding whether someone can be on a trial as to not having other diseases and and you know and the kidneys and heart have to work well and things like that and and also different institutions will have different trials open. And it's not because one trial is better than the other, it's just that you know there's a lot of paperwork that goes along with these trials and um, it'd be very difficult for a single institution, even a very large one to have uh, multiple trials in the, same, um, uh, in the same area. So usually you, you, you pick one that you think is a, is a good fit for your institution and go with that. And finally I'd like to talk about uh quality of life, uh yeah, you know, when you um are speaking with uh your healthcare team. And I think the the one uh uh piece nugget of advice I would give is um you know, to communicate as, as uh honestly as possible with your doctor and you know it's, or, or your nurse or anyone on your healthcare team. Uh we're not mind readers. Um so yeah you know, we we you know might see a scan that we would be concerned might be causing pain or a problem um but if if you don't tell us about it um it's going to be very tough for us to help you out with that so definitely um uh you know let us know what's going on if you're having trouble breathing if you're having pain in any area if there has been any bleeding um and I always I always have a joke that you remember to tell your doctor things as soon as you've paid for parking. So I always recommend people write things down before they come in, in, in to see the doctor. You know, And, and even I have the same experience when, uh, you know, when I'm a patient and the doctor walks into the room, you, you forget things and, and you, you, you get a little bit off your game. So definitely write things down ahead of time, especially if it's about some symptoms you're having. And we just need to know about if we're going to come up with a plan to try to help you out. Uh, so thank you again for your attention, and thank you very much for having me on this conference.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Rosen. So I, I can't imagine doing this program without you. And uh, a, a outstanding presentation as always, and just so informative about uh, the role of radiation um, oncology in the treatment of lung cancer, small lung cancer. Thank you so much, and in many cancers, thank you so much. And our next next speaker is Dr. Elizabeth O'Donnell. Dr. O'Donnell is Director, Lifestyle Clinic, Massachusetts General Hospital, Associate Director, Mass General Cancer Center Survivorship Program, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. O'Donnell will be addressing the important role of lifestyle, movement, activity, and balance, key questions to ask when communicating with your healthcare team, and the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, scheduling follow-up appointments, and discussion of open notes. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my
5: esteemed colleague, Dr. O'Donnell. Thank you so much for the warm welcome. Uh, It's wonderful to be able to participate again today. Um, As Carolyn mentioned, my specialty is actually a different cancer multiple myeloma, but for the past six years, I've offered a clinic at my hospital to really discuss the lifestyle concerns uh, that many cancer patients across all cancer diagnosis uh, wish to address, and so lifestyle medicine is the use of lifestyle interventions such as exercise, diet, stress management, sleep in the treatment and management of disease. This is an evidence based practice to really help get patients to their you know best health practices and and specifically within cancer. Patients often come to me asking, what can I do to better my chances of having a more favorable outcome? And this is a time in people's lives where they may look at their health practices and wonder how they can improve them. Very often we focus on exercise, nutrition, sleep, and weight management. And so for today, I've been asked to talk a little bit about some of the more important questions that I'm asked in my lifestyle clinic, and I'm going to begin with exercise. Um, So you know, there are um, good reasons to exercise. It can reduce fatigue, um, decrease insulin resistance, improve cardiovascular conditioning and quality of life, um, make you stronger, particularly if you've been um, losing muscle mass through your cancer treatments. But really there are some compelling outcomes just in terms of your cancer outcomes. Um, not specific to lung cancer, but in breast cancer, we can see a 50% lower risk of breast cancer recurrence, uh, breast cancer death or death from any cause for uh, those patients who do a moderate amount of exercise, three to five hours per week. We see similar things in colon cancer as well. But really not only that, there's symptom improvement. There are statistically uh, significant improvements in cancer-related fatigue, moods such as depression, anxiety. And so what does the American Cancer Society recommend? Historically, the recommendation had been for 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week with resistance training two times a week. More recent updated guidelines show that cancer patients can actually have a benefit if they just exercise three times a week at least 30 minutes during moderate intensity uh, exercise. So, what is moderate intensity? When we think of light exercise, that would be no noticeable change in a breathing pattern. Moderate, which is the goal, is that you might be able to talk but not sing. And vigorous would be that you could say a few words without stopping to catch your breath, but really you can't have a fluent conversation. Exercise, there are so many different types of physical activity that patients can engage in. Uh, you know, obviously, walking can be the simplest form. Uh, but light exercise can also be things like housework, childcare, playing catch. When you start to think about more modern intensity, you're picking up the pace. It's more brisk. Um, maybe doing more intense yoga, uh, water aerobics, exercise bike. And obviously, uh, more intense exercise uh, is more strenuous and can be things like running or jogging in the appropriate patient or increasing the intensity of biking or yoga or any other activity. When you think about what activities that you might want to do, try to choose something you enjoy. If you're not someone who has historically exercised, think about the things that you enjoy. That can be dancing. That could be swimming. Um, Don't pick things that you don't enjoy because it's much harder to, to stick with something if it's not something that you uh, enjoy, and start slowly. The goal is to build up to 30 minutes, but if you're not doing that type of exercise, it's best to to start in small increments, 10 minutes at a time, and doing 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes in the evening of walking accrues the same benefit uh, of a 20-minute block. Try and do it at least every other day initially, and try classes, try things that might engage you. But if now is not the time to exercise, and for many it's not, then a very important principle is just avoiding inactivity. So return to your normal daily activities as quickly as possible or continue them. Very often there's a tendency when people are first diagnosed with cancer or going through treatment that people want to help uh, and and do the small tasks for you. It's actually better if you try to keep doing that. Keep pushing yourself uh, to empty the dishwasher or do the laundry um, so that you maintain your physical function. Um in addition, you can get support. So physical therapy and rehabilitation medicine can be invaluable uh, in um, in cancer, physical conditioning, and care. Ask your doctor if you're a candidate. Um, I have yet to have an example where physical therapy for deconditioning uh, has not been covered in my patient population. And the benefit of doing that is not only um, do you get the exercise, but you get supervision, you get a guided program. So these are things Uh, that you might think about. Before you begin exercising, though, it's very important that you speak with your oncologist first to know what limitations there might be as a result of your cancer treatment. If you're having any symptoms of chest pain or shortness of breath with even minimal exertion, uh, those are red lights or hard stops that need to be discussed with your doctor. Uh, When it comes to nutrition, uh, really, you know, there's quality uh, and quantity are important considerations Uh, There's a famous quote saying, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. The paradigm in the American diet has really shifted towards trying to be plant-based, which means that two-thirds of your diet should consist of fruits, vegetables, and whole grains. Um, And, uh, you know, in terms of other considerations with diet, Um, You know, some basic quality thoughts would be to avoid sugary drinks, limit alcohol consumption, one drink per day for women, two drinks per day for men, limit red meats, avoid processed meats, um, and eat more vegetables and fruits. Um, You know, supplements are something that come up very frequently. Um, Please talk with your doctor before taking any supplements. We don't often know uh, what goes into those supplements if they're not uh, FDA approved medications and they may interfere with your cancer treatment. Um, and so it is really important that you talk about that uh, with your oncologist before you embark on taking supplements. Another um, important pillar of lifestyle medicine is sleep. Uh, sleep can be highly impacted um, by your cancer treatment. Sleep is very important. We spend up to a third of our lives asleep. It's important. Uh, for our rest and recovery and healing. Uh, the average adult, uh, it is recommended that they uh, sleep from uh, seven to nine hours per night. And, you know, sleep disorders are definitely more common in patients with cancer. This can be due to pain. It can be due to physical changes caused by the cancer, side effects of treatment, or just the psychological stress of treatment. Um, so it's important to make sure that your oncologist is aware of any struggles you might be having. Um, And there are lifestyle changes that may be implementable in your life, sleep hygiene, getting into a routine, going to bed at the same time, waking up at the same time, preparing to sleep, winding down, getting off your screen, turning on a specific song or relaxing music, uh, making sure that you're not eating too late at night or drinking caffeine late in the day. Uh, or early in the evening, and also exercising during the day, uh, str- you know, using your body so that it needs that rest at, time, uh, at bedtime. And, uh, again, it is really important. I do want to emphasize trying to power down those phones and get off them uh, as you try to think about going to bed. The, that blue light uh, emanating from your phone act- activates the brain, suppresses the natural melatonin, which is a sleep hormone, and interrupts circadian rhythms. So these are some really important uh, lifestyle considerations that frequently come up uh, in my clinic, and wanted to share uh, with you um, today. I was also asked to quickly touch base on the key questions to ask when communicating with your healthcare team, and really how to prepare for telemedicine visits since we've moved into that uh, era. And Dr. Rosenzweig did a very lovely job of touching on some of these things. Uh, But what I think is really important, uh, as he said, is writing down those questions. So much comes up in the interim of time before you have your next appointment, and very often it's forgotten until the moment you're out, you know, (laughs) just as he said, paying your parking ticket. So coming prepared uh, with a list, whether that be in paper or on your phone, um, can help make sure that you get to those important questions um, so that you're not waiting another period of time. You can reach out to us. Uh, many cancer centers now offer uh, patient gateway or other means of access for important questions that might come up between visits. Um, Telemedicine is a really great addition uh, to our ability to reach people, to not have them have to come into the hospital. Um, It's also a great opportunity to have other people join the visit, such as a caregiver who may not be able to come to the appointment. Um, In advance of that, uh, that first telemedicine visit, really any telemedicine visit, Just make sure that you um, have been given the instructions on how to log in and can get in on time so that you get uh, the greatest use of your appointment time. And, again, bring those questions with you. Um, And remember, all questions are fair game. You know, very often appointments are short and limited um, to treatment-related questions that might be uh, important for that day. However, there's a lot of life that goes on outside of the cancer center, and your oncologist and their team are well aware of that, and we welcome your questions. We all really want to see our patients thrive. Um, and so, you know, please feel free to bring your questions uh, to your appointments. And uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to participate today.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. O'Donnell. That was really outstanding. And a lot of really very helpful tips to people in um, a manageable way Um to increase activity in your lives, um, to maintain activity in your lives, and also to work with your healthcare team around these issues. So thank you so much. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Burden, And Ms. Burden is an oncology dietitian with the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And she'll be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden.
6: Thank you so much, Carolyn. Um, Nutrition and hydration are essential, um, not only to your tolerance to treatment, but also providing you the energy to do the things that you enjoy. Um, Ideally, um, a diet. that's plant-based is recommended, and how that translates onto your plate is about two-thirds of your plate comes from a plant-based food, such as a fruit, vegetable, whole grain, nuts, seeds, beans, lentils, and the other third coming from a lean protein. You can use a plant-based protein, such as a a bean or quinoa, lentils, et cetera, or you can use lean protein from an animal source, such as a cold water fish, a lean poultry, um, um, to, to fill that. To fill that, that requirement. Now, this is an ideal um, situation, but each patient has their own course of treatment, and each treatment kind of has its own season, just depending on what your treatment plan is. And so there might be a time where this is adjusted, and it doesn't always look like this, and that's okay, too. The goal when you're going through treatment is to halt the loss of lean muscle mass, and oftentimes that's Something we monitor um, is weight. That'll tell us a lot about um, kind of where your nutritional needs are being met if you need more calories, um, for example, just based on your unique course. Um, some potential side effects that you can experience during your course, not everybody does, but it is possible, um, such as the things such as a change in taste, maybe um, some challenges with dry mouth, a decreased appetite, increase in fatigue um and this may change you know what your team is requ- or, excuse me what your team is suggesting that you do now meeting with a dietitian can help not only just look at your unique needs but also help adjust your diet Um, a little bit more independent, a little bit more appropriate for what your needs are, maybe increasing in calories or maybe an increase increase in protein or even fluids, just based on where you are with your treatment and how you're responding. Oftentimes when we have lung cancer, um, patients come through. I see um, some of the struggles that come that come very frequently are challenges of filling full quickly, maybe getting fatigued during meals, um, and just not able to really maintain their weight. And so, um, interventions can be made just based on what's appropriate for you. But even if you're overweight you can still actually become malnourished so don't feel that oh I've got weight to lose I don't need to worry about it because it's still a concern and we want to you know make sure that um, you're getting the best outcomes in the best treatment course that you can so um Hydration is another part of this. We focus a lot on nutrition and weight, which is also very important, but the hydration is also a big part of it. And staying hydrated is very important. Um, oftentimes dehydration can amplify some of the side effects. It can even make you feel dizzy and maybe even make you feel a little lightheaded and unsteady. So it's real important that you're drinking fluid throughout your treatment and um, in general, about 8 to ten eight ounce cups of fluid a day is what's recommended for most folks. Um, and a fluid is anything that's liquid at room temperature that's decaffeinated is best for hydration. So water, milk, juice, um, those are some suggestions. The one thing that I will encourage all all of you to do is to, to know your healthcare team, to know who they are and how to reach out to them. Um, if, if you're having a need or concern and you haven't met someone um, that maybe has been able to give you some some help in that area, ask your healthcare team so they can connect you to that um, that teammate. And we're here to help support you. So the more information you can provide us, the more that we can help. I always encourage patients if you're experiencing a side effect or if you're having a challenge. Let me know. Write it down. You know, that I can better help you if the more I know about what you're going through. So in closing, you know, there are several members of the healthcare team. We're all dedicated to you and to making sure that your course of treatment um, is as optimal as possible. And so feel free to communicate. Keep an open line of communication with all of us. And we're here to help support you. Um, in closing, I'm going to head this back over to Carolyn. Thanks so much.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. That was really outstanding, a wonderful presentation, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Katie Brown, and Ms. Brown is Senior Vice President, Support and Survivorship Programs for the Longevity Foundation, and the Longevity Foundation is a partner organization on today's program and a wonderful resource for all of you coping with lung cancer Um, And Ms. Brown will be addressing Longevity Foundation's free programs and services, and it is my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Brown.
0: Thank you so much for having me today. Um, I have really enjoyed this conversation and and the speakers who went before me, and I just want to reiterate to patients and their loved ones, um, there is a lot on our shoulders when we're diagnosed initially, and we have not been to medical school, and we don't know what we don't know. So um, definitely take the advice of the experts that have just presented, Get to know your healthcare team. Um, Write those questions down that that you may have when you're not in the office to take to the office so that you could have those discussions. Find yourself a champion, you know, whether that's your uh, patient navigator, your oncology nurse, your case manager, whatever they happen to be called where you are, you know, find that champion that will help you um, arm you with the tools that you need to be successful in um, your cancer experience. Those um, impacted by lung cancer can get help navigating um, their cancer from the Longevity website, um, among other websites, um, our helpline, and from survivor and caregiver mentors who have actually been where they are. We have a peer-to-peer lifeline program. We do meet virtually with patients and caregivers three to four times a week. We have multiple online groups for different oncogene types. Um, My advice is to plug into the community, get to know other folks that may have a similar diagnosis to you so that you can learn from their experience and take back what you know to your healthcare team so that you can have um, very comprehensive conversations about your goals and um, what you would like to see happen in your future. So anyone with lungs can get lung cancer, and we just want patients and their families to know that they don't have to go through it alone. There are fantastic programs like the one that you're tuning into today, and you can also visit us at Longevity. Thanks again for this opportunity, Dr. Misner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Brown, and this
1: is such a wonderful resource. So some of you may know of the Longevity Foundation, but for those of you who don't, please do contact their helpline, and their website, and I actually am going to be sending, we'll be sending to all of you on the call today, um, tomorrow, a Survey Monkey evaluation, so it's an evaluation of the program, but there will also be all the resources and links that we offer today, so if you didn't catch them, you'll be sure to have them um, so you can contact and make use of them. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Brown. And our next, I'm just going to say a few words, actually, about cancer care um, briefly. Um, so cancer care is a national um, organization. Um, We provide services, free programs and services to people living with all cancers, including lung cancer. And we do work very closely with the Longevity Foundation. Um, And I just want to mention a few of our services. We do have a hope line that people can call. And um, when they call that line, they'll speak with an oncology social worker. um, And um, the oncology social worker will usually answer their questions and concerns, but also we'll go over with them all the different services we offer. So what are those services? Well, if they're calling about lung cancer, of course, we're going to give them all the resources about the Longevity Foundation. But we're also going to let them know that we do offer a practical, financial, and co-payment assistance, and that can be very helpful. We also have a case management unit. Um, we also offer online support groups, these workshops, and we also offer um, publications. And we also have a pet assistance program for people who may have a cat or a dog and not able to either care for them and need help with their care. Um, and so that's another service that we offer. So with that being said, before we move on to the Q&A, I just have a few questions to ask all of you. And then we're going to move right on to the Q&A. So please have your questions ready. Um, and um, so our first question is, As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the current standard of care for non-small cell lung cancer in the context of COVID-19. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And again, for those of you who are live streaming the call, you'll be able to see these questions and you'll be able to rate your answers. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the role of chemotherapy, radiation oncology, and targeted cancer therapies in the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of new treatment approaches coupled with precision medicine in informing treatments for non-small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of working with the healthcare team to better utilize their tips and suggestions to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain for non-small cell lung cancer? One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the importance of participating in clinical trials for non-small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And again, I want to thank everyone for participating in these questions. It helps us to tailor the, 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 these programs as we plan future programs to best meet your needs. And now I'm going to ask Grace to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Uh, Grace.
0: All right. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. So, um, I have
1: a question um, for um, Ms. Bearden. What specific foods should we avoid?
6: Um, the recommendations from the American Institute for Cancer Research, um, encourage a whole food plant-based diet. And so foods that are as close to harvest as possible is recommended, so all fruits and vegetables, grains, um, lean meats, proteins, etc., are encouraged. Um, the guidelines actually Encourage folks to reduce the intake of sugary beverages, such as sodas, Kool-Aids, for an example, um, and processed foods, such as processed meats. Um, Again, going more towards the whole food approach. So if you're eating chicken, it's better to eat the chicken itself than a deli-type chicken that's been processed. the other thing they recommend is reducing the amount of red meat in your diet. Um, it's not eliminating, but it's reducing um, the amount of red meat in your diet. The other thing that it really isn't a food, but it's a recommendation to use food as your primary source of nutrition and not to use nutrition supplements such as vitamins and, and minerals and things like that, without the direction under a physician, whether it's being monitored, if there's a need, then that's one thing. But if you're doing it kind of on your own just to prevent or reduce your risk of cancer, it's discouraged. So um, we did speak about um, regular physical activity. That's also a recommendation. But as far as food goes, um, it's food in its whole form, as close to harvest as possible and as least processed as possible.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. And a question um, for Dr. O'Donnell. Um, I used to run daily but do not have the energy to run anymore. What other activities can I do? Sure. So one of the
5: ones I always love is, I mean, as simple as walking, but even turning on some music and dancing around your house, everybody can do that. Everybody has a little bit of space for movement. Um, You know, running is hard on the body. It is a great form of exercise, but particularly as people age, it becomes more challenging Non-weight-bearing activities such as elliptical trainer, the bike, those can be a little bit more gentle on your body. Um, but if it's more a case of just not having, you know, the energy um, to get out and exercise and even introducing things like walking up and down the stairs if you're still at work, you know, choosing to go to the bathroom on a different floor so you take in a flight or two of stairs can increase your activity level and add um, Some physical demand to what you're doing that starts simply with walking, if if if, you know, or just movement within your home, if if that's where you are.
1: Excellent, thank you. One other thing to
5: add is there are a lot. Sorry, one other uh, thing is there's a lot available online uh, that's free too. So there, if you go on YouTube uh, or many other uh, just Google, there are a lot of exercise videos available. At MGH, we Mm -hmm. offer free videos to anybody, if you go to our website, they're also on YouTube. So there are also a lot of free resources available uh, for exercise activities that may help stimulate you.
1: Excellent, thank you so much, very excellent. And Dr. Rosenstein, a question for you. I am in remission now, would I need radiation oncology again if I relapse? If you could just answer that in a general way.
4: Um, Well, first of all, congratulations, that's wonderful news. that you don't have any uh, active signs of uh, cancer. Um, So, um, you know, and hopefully you'll never have to have this conversation. But, you know, we know people are at risk for a new tumor developing or their old tumor coming back. And sometimes it's tough to distinguish between one and the other. Um, If this situation happens, it's almost back to the very beginning and, you know, kind of what Dr. Uh, Lowell was talking about earlier today, you have the whole workup, the biopsy, um, because things might have changed um, in the intervening years. It might be a, a completely new situation, or sometimes the, if there was a mutation like she was talking about, it has mutated again. Um, so it's really back to square one with the whole workup. And in some ways, that's a good a good. Good situation because we're trying to figure out, you know, how to uh, take care of this uh, situation for good and, and to get get to a cure and get you to uh, a situation where you don't have to um, uh, get any further treatment. Uh, so, um, again, congratulations on uh, on having a, a good outcome and um, and this is partly why you know continued follow-up is important. And if if there is um, some concerning news down the road, you know, um, we we tend to try to use every opportunity to get you back to a a good place um, as easily as possible.
1: Thank you so much. And um, I want to thank our speakers. I also want to thank our participants. It's been a remarkable call today. Um, And I also want to um, let everyone know there is a Part 2 to this program. It's next um, Tuesday, um, May 17th. Um, And it's for caregivers of people living with non-small cell lung cancer. It will occur from uh, 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern time. Um, You'll also be getting information about that as well, but just to give you a heads up now on this. Now, I do want to acknowledge that um, we were able to take many questions today, but there are many questions still left. Um, uh, Many of you are still in queue with questions that we have not been able to take. Um, and so I do want to acknowledge that, um, and I want to say a few words about that. First of all, for those of you who either asked a question, have a question yet to ask, or are thinking of another question, I want you to take all that information that you've learned today back to your Treating healthcare team because they know you the best, and they know all the details about you. So be sure you take your question back to your Treating healthcare team so that they can best address your question. That's really very important. Um, and um, I'll see today's program as a role play in asking questions. And what you could see from today is that all of your questions that you asked today were good questions, wonderful questions. They always are. They're your questions. And keep asking them until you get the answers that really help you to move on and to get the help you need. Um, also, your health care team consists of many different disciplines. It consists of your oncologist, your radiation oncologist, your, um, uh, your oncology nurse, oncology social worker, um, the um, physical therapist, uh, physical medicine, a whole group of people who can help you with your concerns. And and there are financial specialists as well. So if you're having any concerns, please let your healthcare team know. Because, start with them, but you also can contact, of course, Cancer Care and the Longevity Foundation as well for any concerns you may have, and you'll be getting information about all resources that we recommend that are credible resources. We don't want you to just go on to Google and find something that may not be accurate and correct information. We want to be sure you get the most accurate evidence-based, I think a number of our speakers use the word, evidence-based information um, for your care. That's so important. Um, again, I just want to thank all of you for your participation today, and I would not want any one of you to feel like you're alone in coping with lung cancer, any type of cancer. You're now part of a community of support. We're here to help you, and with simply a phone call or a mouse click away. Um, again, I want to thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day and look forward to seeing many of you next um, on next Tuesday's
0: program. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may not disconnect. Have a great day, everyone.